I'd like to direct your attention once again to the words that are Daniel chapter 12. Now, originally, I was planning on just doing all of this chapter and finishing up Daniel. There's so much uh, that I think is worthy of our attention that I'm going to stop at verse 4. And um, I still had to cut a ton of content out of my message just to, to make it reasonable. So, um, but there's, there's a lot of really good, encouraging things that I think you'll be greatly edified by. So, let's look at verses 1 through 4 of this a very encouraging chapter. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel... Conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Please pray with me. Lord, just as Daniel asked for insight and understanding into this prophecy, I pray that you you would also give us insight and understanding that we would not just know what the words mean, not just even understand the main point. But, Lord, that we would understand it in all of its glory, in all of its beauty, all of its depth. And and likewise, that we would see how we should therefore live in light of what it teaches. And, Lord, you know what you've called each of us to in our own individual circumstances, according to our own abilities and natures and desires. And I pray that you would use this text to stir us up to be as faithful to you as we could possibly be. And that you would give us insight and understanding. So even if we are alive, when these things that are prophesied take place, that we would stand firm and be used to bring others to righteousness. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we begin to look at Daniel chapter 12, it's important to recall that this is... Uh, The final chapter of a section that began, of course, back in Daniel chapter 9, or sorry, Daniel chapter 10. This is a conclusion to the message that was brought to Daniel by the angel of the Lord. And you'll recall that Daniel was mourning and he was fasting as he looked over the state of Israel because he was grieved and wondered, God, when is it that you're going to bring about these promises? You've made these grand and magnificent promises to Abraham, but your people are scattered amongst the nations and they're, they're in a horrible state, both uh, physically speaking, but especially spiritually speaking. And he was grieving and longing to understand what God's purposes would be. And so the angel of the Lord came to Daniel to explain 
what would happen to Israel from Daniel's time up through Antiochus Epiphanes and then even through the Antichrist. And that brings us to Daniel chapter 12, which is connected, of course, to chapter 11, which ended with this description of the rule of the Antichrist. Chapter 12 begins with the angel of the Lord telling Daniel that three major events will take place at the end of the age. Michael will arise. There will be a time of great tribulation. And there will be, at that time, the saints resurrected. And so we're going to briefly look at the first two, the arise of Michael and the great tribulation But we're going to spend most of our time uh, looking at the resurrection. Let's look really quick at the rise of Michael that's mentioned. The first event that will take place, the angel of the Lord announces, is Michael will arise. Now, Michael is only mentioned a few times in the scripture, but uh, based upon those uh, usages where he is mentioned, uh, he seems to be have a, a particular responsibility for Israel. John Calvin actually thought it was uh, maybe uh, the Messiah himself. I think given how Michael is referred to earlier, uh, that's unlikely because the, the angel of the Lord seems to work in conjunction with Michael. But I think Michael is really the archangel and guardian of Israel. But, I, but this event of Michael's rising is really further developed in Revelation chapter 12. So I would encourage you to turn, put your finger here in Daniel 12. And, now, and then turn over to Revelation chapter 12, where this rising of Michael is described, beginning at verse 7. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them night and day before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. What this communicates is that the throwing down of, of the devil by Michael is what signals to Satan that his time has come. This is the throwing down of Satan is like the throwing down of a gauntlet. To use a football analogy, it's like the two-minute warning for Satan. Or if you're a soccer fan, it's stoppage time. It's, it's all about to come to a close. And Satan will know it. And because he knows it, that's when he will unleash 
all of his power, all of his wrath upon the Jews in particular, but secondarily against the church. And this period is what is commonly referred to as the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation. Let's look at that because that's also what the angel of the Lord describes to Daniel. That after the arising of Daniel, as he throws Satan down, he says there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. In other parts of Scripture, this three and a half years is called a a time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 37. Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of Jacob's trouble, yet he shall be saved out of it. In Joel 2, it's called a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never before been seen, nor will it be again after them through all the years of all generations. This is repeated by Jesus when he tells his disciples in Matthew 24 that there will be great tribulation. That's where we get the word tribulation. Such has has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. So these these prophecies are especially troubling when one considers all the trials and persecutions and tribulations that the Jews have already gone through throughout history. Consider the Holocaust where millions were murdered. The Spanish Inquisition. Even the siege of Jerusalem that's described in detail in Lamentations and and really, I think, prophesied in, in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32, amongst the curses that would come upon Israel. This passage says that the days of the Great Tribulation will be far worse. Worse than any nation has ever experienced until that time. Worse than Rwanda. Worse than Cambodia. Worse than any genocide you can imagine. And this, that, that, that fact is repeated in multiple scriptures. It will be worse. A time of distress here in Daniel, such as had never been experienced. But the angel of the Lord quickly follows this second event, the Great Tribulation, with a message of hope. In verse 1, the beginning of verse 1, he says, At that time, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but to others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Now, there are four things that I want to point out about this resurrection that is described. Uh, First, what I want to point out is that this is the most explicit reference in the Old Testament to a bodily resurrection. And so a great verse to use, even in maybe an evangelistic conversation with a Jewish friend, uh, bringing up the reality of the resurrection, showing that even Daniel and there's other there's other passages that speak to it. But this is the most explicit. Secondly, notice that when the resurrection 
when this resurrection will take place. It will take place after this time of great distress, after the great tribulation. Now, I wasn't working, looking for this when I was, came across this passage, but this strongly affirms my suspicion of a post-tribulation resurrection. Some of you have asked, what do you believe regarding eschatology? And there's all sorts of views regarding eschatology. And that's okay because most of these things haven't happened yet for the most part. Um, and therefore, it's okay to have some uncertainty. But I think the Bible is pretty clear. And I'm strongly convinced of a premillennial post-tribulational view. And I, and I think that's pretty strongly uh, affirmed here in Daniel 12. Partially because the, the scripture that's most commonly cited to defend a pre-tribulation rapture is 1 Thessalonians 4:15, And consider what that says in light of what's revealed here. Paul tells the Thessalonians, We declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So if Christians who are alive at that time will not precede those who have died in Christ, other Old Testament saints, as is being spoken of in Daniel 12, and according to Daniel 12, the resurrection of the Old Testament saints happens after the tribulation, this strongly suggests that this uh, rapture or resurrection takes place at the end of the tribulation. Thirdly, note the contrast between the people that are resurrected. He says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So believers will receive everlasting life. And that promise is given throughout the Bible. That, that that's, that's what it means to know God. That is, we want eternal life. Eternal life is knowing you, knowing you Jesus says, referring to the Father. But everyone else also will be resurrected. But instead of receiving everlasting life, they will be resurrected to everlasting disgrace and contempt. The first word means to cast blame or scorn on someone. They are disgrace. And the, and the second word, contempt, means to be abhorrent. To be disgraced and to be abhorrent. And notice the adjective. Everlasting. Those who die outside of Christ will be resurrected everlasting scorn and disgrace and contempt. And I would say probably to experience scorn and disgrace is probably people's, almost everyone's worst fear. People are afraid of many things, but this is probably the greatest fear. That's why we go out of our way to hide the things that we're ashamed of and to, and to just give people the best impression of ourselves. We hate feeling shame. We do everything we can to make people like us and respect us. And imagine that the, the, the disgrace 
that you would feel and experience if everybody in the world knew the worst things about you? If, it, if, if the worst things that you've ever done, ever thought, ever desired became publicly known and everybody knew that about you, imagine how awful that would feel. And then imagine that that scorn and shame and disgrace would never go away. If you are outside of Christ, that will be your fate. That is the fate that you are choosing. Because you're not willing to come to the only one who could take that shame and disgrace away. The only way that shame and disgrace can be removed is through the blood of Christ. And unless you are willing to trust him and repent from your sin... All of that shame, all of that disgrace will define you forever and ever and ever. The fourth thing I want to point about the about the resurrection is the degrees of glory that are noted in verse three. Those who have insight it says, will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Again, you have this massive contrast. Those who reject Christ, every unbelievable will be defined by shame. The very thing that we want to hide from and flee from like Adam and Eve in the garden. But in direct contrast, those who are in Christ, their very physical natures will be defined by glory and an unspeakable glory at that. According to verse 1, everyone whose name is found in the book of life, that means believers, will receive everlasting life. But apparently, the degree, the degree of glory that each resurrected body has will be based upon a number of Factors And two particular factors are emphasized here, namely biblical wisdom and the spiritual impact that you have on others. Now, in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus gives a number of parables that um, that indicate that there will be varied rewards based upon people's faithfulness to them, to him in their life. And Paul also refers to this future reward in 1 Corinthians when he writes, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Speaking of eternal reward. But I want to direct your attention in particular to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So if you want to put your finger in Daniel 12, and then turn to 2 Corinthians 4, because it gives a little more insight into what's this degree of glory of the resurrected body. Because I'm convinced that this is what Paul is speaking of in this chapter when he says in verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us a far greater eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And I think he's talking about the glory of the resurrected body because that's the very next thing he talks about. Right? 
We look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. But then look in verse chapter five, verse one and the verses that follow. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, speaking of our physical body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this tent, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, our glorified bodies. If indeed by putting it on, we may not found to be naked. And notice next how the degree of glory in the resurrection is tied to the judgment of one's faithfulness to Christ. Look at verse 10, chapter 5, verse 10, just a few verses later. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Right? So the degree of glory in one's resurrected body seems clearly to be tied to Christ's assessment of their faithfulness. So again, all the saints, every single one, from the thief on the cross to anybody who has followed Christ since they were a young child, everyone will receive a glorified, resurrected body and live with Christ for all eternity. But there will be degrees of glory. So some will have glorified bodies that will shine like the glory of the expanse of heaven. And those are those whose lives are defined by biblical wisdom. And this, this, their body will shine like the glory of the expanse of heaven refers to uh, just think of the noonday sky. Even this, well, it's not so bright right now. It's Oregon. But just imagine a just a brilliantly bright sky, not the sun, but just the sky itself as it lights up the day. I mean, sometimes it's so bright outside that we have to wear sunglasses. So those people whose lives are defined by biblical wisdom and insight are going to be so glorious that you'll have to wear shades when you're around them. That's the idea. But still there are others who will even be more glorified in that they will shine like the stars themselves, like those burning balls of gas that are millions of miles uh, uh, light years away. And yet we can see them. They're millions of light years away, and yet we can still see them at night because they're that brilliant, that glorious. So let's look a little deeper at the two factors which ones that, that, that will factor in how glorified a body a person will receive. The first factor noted is, of course, biblical wisdom. It says, for those with insight, for those with insight. Uh, this is the same word that has been used throughout Daniel to describe Daniel in particular. He had wisdom and insight. And of course, we see this throughout his life, not only in the prophecies received, but even how he lives, what he risks. I mean, he just shows he is a man that is completely defined by his correct interpretation of the word of God. And not only does he understand it, he lives in light of what he understands. I mean, even going back to Daniel chapter 10, because he understood all the promises made to Abraham, he was grieving, he was mourning. So even emotionally, he shows, he understands the truthfulness of God's word. He gets it. 
And so wisdom is not speaking to intellectual brilliance. It's not referring to being clever or smart. Biblical wisdom isn't measured by an IQ test or an SAT. It's measured by one's conduct, by their choices, by their lifestyle. Consider what the Apostle James says in James 3. Who is wise in understanding among you? Well, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false against the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, namely the United States, of course he wasn't thinking that, I inserted it. There will be disorder in every vile practice. And we see that. But the wisdom from above, verse 17, is first pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I mean, notice these are all virtues. They're characteristics. They're not actions. They're one's nature. That lead then, as he says in verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. One's wisdom affects who they are and therefore the choices that they make, right? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom, right? They show how the word has impacted them by how they think, how they feel, and then um, what they do. And those whose bodies will shine like the noonday sky are those whose lives are defined like Daniel, like the man of Psalm 1, the blessed man of Psalm 1. They are those whose lives are defined by biblical wisdom. Secondly, the other factor that will affect the degree of glory that one will receive in their glorified body is the spiritual impact they have on others. Notice it says, and those who lead many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. And I believe this is referring both to the evangelistic impact they have, but also to their uh, edification within the body of Christ. And I say that because both of those things uh, Jesus commanded in the Great Commission, right? We know this well, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, referring to evangelism, right? Baptism is the sign that one has committed their life to Christ and trusts in his death and his resurrection for the forgiveness of their sins. Baptizing them, but secondarily, secondarily which is often forgotten in the Great Commission, not only are we to baptize, but we are to teach them everything that I've commanded. The whole counsel of God. So the church fulfills Christ's instructions when they both evangelize and they seek to teach one another everything that Christ has commanded. Both what he has said, but, but, but by implication, how to do it. Right? It's not hard to say, this is what you need to do. But, but it's sometimes difficult to understand, well, what does that actually look like? I mean, how many times have you heard a message and you're thinking, OK, I believe that's true, but good night. How do I do that at work? How do I do that at home? How do I do that as a parent? 
So biblical instruction entails not just biblical exposition, but then also explanation and and even example of how this is lived out. So, again, this is given to the disciples in particular, this Great Commission, but really by implication it's given to the whole church as well. And so all Christians, therefore, by implications, are called to teach. They're called to teach. And that's why the preaching of the Word of God is so central in our worship services and everything we do. But Christians, again, aren't merely to consume the Word, but we're to take what we've learned and then go and share that to others. Again, so coming to church is not merely about coming and listening to a sermon, but in your mind you should be thinking, I want to learn this passage so well that I can go now and take it to somebody else who didn't hear this message. Now, maybe you can't explain it word for word or use all the same analogies because you forget it, but that's why you should be taking notes is to try and remember as much as you can so that you too would rightly understand it, but not just for your benefit, but for the benefit of others. So that you can teach others. So we're, we're to be like mama birds that bring back food to their baby birds, right? And you know about probably how that process works. They, they eat it, they chew it, and then they, you know, project it into their baby birds. And their baby birds eat and grow and fly away. And go build nests of their own. So we're, we're to come to church not to simply fatten our heads and our hearts, but to take what we've learned and then go to proclaim it to other people. It could be our children, it could be our brothers and sisters and our family, co-workers, or maybe somebody, somebody sometime down the road. But also, again, I want to emphasize that, that the teaching is not confined just to biblical exposition but practical instruction as well. This is exactly why Paul tells Titus um, to have the older women in Titus's church instruct through training. Right? Titus 2. It tells the older women in Titus 2 to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Like the main verb there is train. And that's not preach. That, that's referring to practical instruction. How to live this out. How, okay, I know I'm supposed to love my husband, but good night. How do you do that? I mean, I'm sure when our women get together, that's one of the things they're talking about. I've never been to a part of a women's meeting, but I imagine it's like, you've never lived with Jason. Right? You have no idea. You've never lived with Joseph. Help me. Bear with him and love him because I want to. So Paul is not saying that women need to be biblical expositors to preach to other women, but they just need to help younger women know how to live this out. How do you do it? In the same vein, a few verses later in Titus, Paul tells Titus, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Titus, not only are you supposed to preach on Sundays, be an example. Show them what it looks like to live this out. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, command and teach these things. And then in verse 12, he says, 
Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. And I, I emphasize this point not to diminish the, the immense importance of biblical exposition, because I think you guys know that already, how much we value that. But really to emphasize that we not only need biblical exposition, but we need just practical instruction. On how do we live out the Bible? Something all of us can do. You don't need to go to seminary to help another person know how to love their children. To, know, to help another person how to be a better coworker. You might not feel gifted to teach in any formal passion, but realize that some of the best teachers, in fact, most of the best teachers, aren't those who explain or give instruction. It's they give an example. And you know that based upon your own life. The people who probably had the biggest impact on your life, it wasn't because of what they said. It's because of who they were and how they lived. And that's, you can have the same impact if you too strive to have such an impact. So you don't need to be an expert in the Bible to teach others how to live out the Bible. You might not be able to clearly articulate the differences between the various theological systems, amillennialism and premillennialism, postmillennialism, but you have the ability to be an example of how to make good decisions in light of an uncertain future. You might not be able to preach a sermon on contentment, but you can, you can demonstrate your contentment in the way you live every day of your life. You might not be able to point to all the different passages on joy, on biblical joy, but maybe in, you demonstrate in your life what it looks like to have joy in the midst of suffering. And you might not be able to quote where it is, but you know you've heard the Bible teach and you've, you've taken that into your heart. You've read it and you've meditated on it. You can't remember the address in the Bible, but it's, it's changed your life to such an extent that now other people see it in you. And they're asking, tell me, how is it that you have such joy in the midst of this mess of, of suffering and pain that is your life? And we have tons of resources right now in America and in Christianity. You can, we have podcasts to listen to. We have a million different translations of the Bible. We have books that we can read. We have sermons online we can listen to. All sorts of websites that we could reference. We have tons of resources to increase our understanding of the Bible. But one of the things that we are starved for is examples of godly men and women who live out that instruction. We have just it, it, a treasure trove. It's like Scrooge McDuck. You know, if you, you remember DuckTales, he's got all this just huge tower of just gold and he swims in it. doesn't go anywhere, but just stays there. We have so much Christian resources available to us that we can't even utilize it all. And that, so... And I don't want to diminish that. Those are all good and great and wonderful, and I'm so thankful for them. But we are starved for examples of godliness. And, and that, that, that's all the more poignant when you, again, going back to that point, those who often have the greatest impact aren't teachers. Often they're not preachers. They're people who just lived godly lives. 
arguably the man who had the greatest spiritual impact in the modern era was David Brainerd. That's a stunning thing to say because he, he only lived to be 29. He never wrote a book that I know of. Most of the sermons he preached were to a small, weren't even in English, they were to a small tribe of Indians in northeastern the United States. In fact, we probably wouldn't know anything about him except at the end of his life, he met Jonathan Edwards and stayed at his home while he was dying of tuberculosis. Jonathan Edwards happened to read parts of his journal and as Brainerd was passing away, Edwards said, can I publish what you've written here? David Brainerd didn't write his journal to be published. He just wanted a record of his own spiritual struggles um, and successes for his own accounting. But Edwards was so impacted by it, he did publish it after David said, let's, let's take some things out. But he did publish it, and it's always been in print since. William Carey regarded Jonathan Edwards' life of David Brainerd as a sacred text. Henry Martin, the pioneer missionary to Persia in India, said, quote, perusing the life of David Brainerd, his soul was filled with a holy emulation of that extraordinary man. And after deep consideration and fervent prayer, Martin said he was at length fixed in a resolution to imitate his example. The great evangelist John Wesley said, let every preacher read carefully over the life of Brainerd. It doesn't end there. Robert Morrison, pioneer missionary to China, arguably more Christians in China today than anywhere else. Robert Murray McShane of Scotland. David Livingstone, uh, explorer to Africa. Andrew Murray of South Africa. Jim Elliott of modern America. These giants of evangelism and missions, all of them said they were massively impacted by his example. Notice what I just said there. They were massively impacted, not by his teaching, but just by his example. His exemplary life that was driven by insight that he had gleaned from his own study of the Word of God. And what the Lord is teaching us in Daniel 12, again, is that the degree of glory that one receives at the resurrection will be tied to one's insight and understanding of the word of God and to their um, spiritual impact that they have in light of that insight. And as a side note, I think it's important that we also uh, consider as we take all this information about the, the, the resurrected bodies to come and the criteria, biblical wisdom of the factors that will factor into this glorification, biblical wisdom and spiritual impact, that we also bring alongside another verse we're well familiar with regarding our future judgment. And that's Mark 10, 43 and 44. Jesus tells his disciples who longed to make a name for themselves. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now think about what Jesus is saying there to the people he would send out to be instructors of the church. 
See, Jesus' point is you need to have the mindset of a slave. In other words, it's not about you. It's not about having authority. It's not about position. It's not about respect. When you teach men, you need to teach as a slave. In other words, it's about the people you're teaching to. Teaching solely because you want others to learn. You want others to be righteous. So fathers, as you lead your families and family worship, it's not about proving that you're a dad that does it. It's about wanting your kids, wanting your wife to understand the word of God. And you're going to do whatever you can to help them understand it. Or if you're a Sunday school teacher or um, whatever ministry you might be involved in, when you instruct, when you help one another how to how to be a better usher, how to be a better counter, whenever you're instructing, it's not about you and what you want and showing what you know. It's got to be about serving others. And this is exactly why Paul told the Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Paul says, you want to know what I'm looking forward to? Where my confidence is when I get, my res- when I get judged and I get my resurrected body? Paul says, you want to know what our boasting is? Is it not you? For you are glory and joy. Think about what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I'm not, my confidence isn't because I worked harder than any of them, which he says he did. It's not because I knew more of the Bible. It's not because of, I went to more nations and I preached more sermons and I suffered more. Paul says, you want to know what my confidence is when I stand in the judgment day? When I find out how glorified my body's going to be? He says, it's you. It will be based on the spiritual impact I had in you. I'm doing this for you. I'm not doing this for me. It's because I want you to be glorified. I mean, think about how that, again, it's the mindset of having, being a servant, being a slave. And I just can't emphasize that enough because it's just so contrary to how we think about ministry. It's the ministry that's truly done with the heart of Christ is done because you want to see others grow. You're doing it for them. And this ties into the angel of the Lord's admonition to Daniel in verse four. Where he talks about Daniel's responsibility. But as for you, Daniel. Conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. The point is that, Daniel, you're mourning, you're grieving because you want to know what my plan is. Daniel, this is what you need to do. This is your responsibility. Seal up these words. This is your job. Seal up this prophecy. Now, the angel's not telling Daniel that he needs to hide it or conceal it. The words that are used here really refer to preservation, keeping it safe, securing it, 
so that future generations would have it so that they could read it. So it's, it's Daniel saying, Daniel, just finish this, write this prophecy down, finish it up, and then distribute it. So it's available that people have the word of God so that when these days come upon them, they won't panic. But they would see that this is all a part of my divine design. And I'm sovereign over everything that takes place. And I believe this is the same idea that Paul was communicating to Timothy when he said, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. At the end of his exhortation in his letter to First Timothy, First Timothy, Paul says, guard it, protect it. And I think it means protect it from false teachers, particularly to Timothy, but the same idea that's given to Daniel. Daniel, what they need isn't you, they need the Word of God. Daniel, that's your job. Write down the Word of God, give it to them, distribute it to them. And, namely, because the end of this prophecy is Daniel 12 and it considers all of Daniel, Daniel, they'll also be impacted by your example. Right? The very two things, what the glorified God is going to be based upon. Understanding and insight, which Daniel exemplified. And then the living out of that for others. Daniel's job is to reveal to others what's already been revealed to him and then lead others to righteousness through the insight that has been gleaned. But how people respond to that teaching will be up to them because it says many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. And the point being made here, it's probably a a reference to Amos 8, I think it's verse 12, where it it says in the last days people are going to be craving for for insight and understanding they're going to go back and forth searching for god's purposes i don't know if that means there's just not going to be access to the word of god it could be that or it could just be they're they're looking for all sorts of religions trying to find hope someplace looking at all sorts of gurus or false messiahs they're searching and those who search and find the word of god their knowledge will increase but those who search but not looking for the Word of God. They're just searching for hope somewhere else. They'll just continue to search and search and search and be aimless in their searching. But those who get this, their knowledge will increase. So recalling this vision again is in response to Daniel's grieving over the plight of Israel. The angel of the Lord closes by telling Daniel what his part is to be. Daniel, your part is to just... just publish the truth and then God in his good time would bring about the promises that he has made to Israel. Daniel, I got this. You want to know what your job is? Proclaim. Publish the truth. And likewise, the part we have to play in all of God's grand eternal purposes is first and foremost to receive the words that have been passed down to us. To understand them. Search the scriptures, gain insight, let the word of God have an impact upon our life. And then through the impact it has upon us, share it with others, but not just talk, not just teach, but live out by example the impact that it already has on you. 
People need to see both your life and your teaching, right? Both together. And if we do that, with, if we have spiritual insight that increases and then share that truth with others, then in the future, we will be glorified bodies that are so brilliant, we will shine like the stars forever and ever. Amen. Father, it's just hard to believe. Not because it's, we doubt any of what you've said, because your word is true and no, none of your promises will pass away. They will all come to fulfillment. And yet to imagine that we, weak and vile and foolish and self-centered creatures, might be raised with bodies like yours that you received at your resurrection is is difficult to conceive of. But Father, I pray that you would help us to be the people that you've called us to be, that we would gain insight, that each one of us would devote ourselves more to studying the Scriptures, to reading, but also to then sharing truth and learning truth and then devoting our lives not to sports, not to more money, not to other transitory temporal glories of this life, but we devote ourselves to seeing you glorified in the lives of one another. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.